Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you guys here with us again for episode 106. Uh, we'd like to apologize. We we are are struggling right now to get to get these episodes made. Um, you know, we're in a bit of a period of transition, and and we're we're working on it. Um, yeah, it's not for lack of material. Yeah, there's there's plenty, there's plenty of things, of things going happening. on. <laughs> it is it is just us. This is purely a personal problem. Job changes, children born, etc. We've been yeah. Our goal has been every week, and as you can see, if you've been listening. We have failed miserably at so, that for the last So three we're going so. to uh, announce after the fact that we are switching to every two weeks. Because um, that, that, I think that's all we can handle right now. Uh, maybe in the future we'll be able to switch back to once a week. But for now, we're going to do every two weeks in order to be a little bit more consistent with you guys as far as expectations go and our actual ability to fulfill those expectations. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> with that, welcome back to 106. Glad to have you with us. Glad you're here. We're going to go through some critical theory stuff. Um, this stuff is really interesting to me, and I didn't understand it for a long time. Um, if some of you have been listening to, I've mentioned, uh, I've touched on a few of these ideas in recent episodes, just kind of throwing out little bits here and there as they've been relevant. Um, in some ways, this was inspired by some of the comments of, of Jordan Peterson some years ago that I heard. And he said, he was pointing to some of the events and he said, this is cultural Marxism. And I was like, I don't know what he means by that. I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, I had a vague idea, you know, of like things are socialist or Marxist or whatever. And I know Marxism fairly well. But Marxism is, if by Marxism we mean the writings of Karl Marx. Uh-huh. Let's be clear here. There's, there's, unfortunately, there's a 200 year, almost 200 year uh, history that's come after that. My cat is apparently playing with a bag in this room. I think my mic's picking that up. So weird. Um, the, uh, and that history matters and the ideas have developed a long ways. So if you look at Marx just by himself, um, there's good reason to discard his ideas. I mean, there's good reason even if you look at the line of ideas after. But people have built on those Wait, ideas. Wait, you're not and- pro-Marxism? You're, <laughs> you're just taking a stand just like that in this episode. These, <laughs> these, these pretty hardcore libertarian podcasters are not pro-Marxist. You're just going to throw that out there without a defense. We're not, we're not particularly fond of Marx. Oh, good Go job qualifying that. it. I appreciate that. Yes, if we're going to be precise, I, I don't love Marx. Um, but it, and, and I plan on defending it. But today, we're not going to deal with Marx directly. We're going to deal with an offshoot of Marx's ideas. And to get there, I'm going to trace Marx to this idea first off. Um, so one of the issues with Marxism, like not today, but the original Marxism, is that mm-hmm. Marx was absolutely sure that what he was looking at was inevitable. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't look at it and was like, you know what we should do? We should do this. He looked at the world and he said, this is the way the world is. And because this is the way the world is, this is what's going to happen. Which is why he reads more like an ancient prophet than some kind of political theorist or economic thinker. Marx didn't look at the world and go, you know what I think we should do? I think this would be ideal. Let's try and work towards this. No, he was a, he was a disciple of Hegel. Uh, Hegel had this interesting view of history as this inevitable process that would push things through stages 
um, the spirit of history would move us towards a particular destination. Not everybody would get there. Not everybody was capable of it. Hence some of the, the mm-hmm. their racist offshoots of Hegel. <laughs> you can tie a lot of interesting ideas to Hegel in part because it's, you know, Nazism ties into Hegel somewhat too. And there's right and left Hegelians. Anyway, we won't get into Hegel as he's one of the most complicated thinkers out there. But his general idea of history moving, uh, moving towards uh, a conclusion through inevitable processes that eventually lead to the people becoming aware of history and this movement, and then they can participate in it. Mm-hmm. They quite literally become conscious of it or awake to the direction of history, and they then can become conscious actors that push it towards where it's going. Where it's already going anyways. Where it's already going anyway, mm-hmm. but they, are, they become part of the enlightened few who can then uh, intervene and pull other countries in that direction. A lot of our stupid foreign policy decisions over the years is us trying to act out this Hegelian vision. Yeah, not the Marxist one, but the the historical, <laughs> Just, yeah. the, the more general historical one that there are these, these. I mean, it's funny you talking about this because so many of these these things may be triggering to people because you know you hear about being on the right side of history, you hear yep, about being yep. you know woke, all of these things that are common ideas now, but but weren't common at one point. Um, expanding yes. on on Marx, Marx was focused obviously on 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 economics to a large degree and and his idea of the inevitability was an inevitable revolution because he believed you know you've got basically the the working class which is almost everybody who is by definition being oppressed by these upper classes you know and therefore it's inevitable that at some point they're going to revolt. There's going to be this natural mm-hmm. revolution that's going to be victorious. Because if the one is oppressing the 99, at some point the 99 catch on and overthrow the one, right? Right. Right. Especially and, as they're pushed to more and more dire extremes. Yeah, exactly. Thought, and and, and because capital would perpetually yes, accumulate and impoverish the people. Yes, because more of his more. economic principles where he believed that mm-hmm. that by definition they're going to continue to oppress and oppress more and the working class are going to become more and more destitute, have less and less to lose, of course they'll overthrow their masters. And and that's really not what's happened broadly in the world. Broadly in the world, the working class has gotten richer and richer and has become less desperate and has a lot more to lose and a lot less reason to overthrow the current systems, which right. which I know is going to get, you know, get some pushback here in the United States talking about how evil the capitalists are now, you know. Dollar Tree raised their prices from a dollar to a dollar twenty-five because they're evil capitalists. It's like, no, you <laughs> don't understand. You don't understand what we're talking about. You go, you go from the working class two hundred years ago under Marx. You know when Marx, you know, wrote what he did to the working class now, and it's night and day in terms of quality of life, in terms of things that you have, in terms of resources, in terms of freedom. You know, right now in the United States, we complain because we don't have you know, six months of, you know, or three months or six months of maternity leave like they do in some countries, you know, failing to overlook the many things that that we do have. And I'm not saying what what the U.S. has is perfect. What I'm saying is if you look at it over as a whole in Western capitalized countries, 
you know, so-called, the working class people has drastically improved their lives. And that's yeah. just <laughs> unarguable over, yeah, over a large period of time. You may argue that over the last two years, things have gotten worse. And I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm saying over the long term, absolutely, it's indisputable. Yes, and, and, and it's on a scale that people don't realize. It's something like we're something like 200 times more productive depending on which relative to which item anyway we, mm -hmm. we could you could get in the details but we are way better off than someone 200 years ago way better off by every metric um and the, maybe not every metric but by every economic metric right mm -hmm. yeah the um, metrics that marx was most concerned with yes and so this this flies in the face of marx's original work in a way that absolutely cripples it now that doesn't mean he's wrong about everything, right? It'd be mm -hmm. foolish to say that because a theory gets even a critical part wrong, that it doesn't have uh, things of value in it. Mm -hmm. And so rightfully, people who, who thought he was basically right on other things took his theories and they, they tried to figure out what went wrong and to fix it. So this is where you get a lot of different branches of Marxism that, that then flow into the different ideas we have today. Um, you see a lot of these play out in World War II. Uh, Lenin and Mao in particular have two different solutions to this problem. Um, Lenin... I, I like how you said World War II and then you go with two guys, you know, one pre-World War II and one post-World War II. Continue. <laughs> Thank you for calling out my, uh, my loose history here. I, I get it. It's World both, War II era, they're both, you're right. They're, they're both not so actually. related. Like, it makes sense because so much of what happened is related to the World Wars. Yes, we just kind of, you're right, but historically we kind of group this all into the broad changes of World War II, but you're right. They were, those are not technically anything in the world wars. <laughs> I appreciate the clarification because you know someone's listening and is going to be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That but. someone was me. Someone was Brad. <laughs> the rare opportunity to be the person listening and be on the podcast and say, hold up, hold up. I'm <laughs> so Lenin believed that the people, the working class, was actually getting exploited and they just were uh because capitalism was rewarding them somewhat more than he thought more than marx originally thought that what they needed was a vanguard a group of people who were smarter than they were who were probably from the elite classes and the well-educated classes maybe maybe in the capitalist class right and mm -hmm. these people would lead the way they would look at it and they'd say we can see what the future could be like. We're going to show the way. And that history would, needs a little start push. Things. That's right. That's right. Well, it needs it, and it needs a push from who? From the people who can see it. The people yeah. who are the people awake. with the knowledge who also happen to the have enlightened few. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Who are some kind of elite. Yeah, through the historical process, have become conscious of this possibility. So, uh, and obviously, we can go. You could get into what happened there. Mao had a different idea. He believed that culture had a tendency to replicate itself, which I guess probably no one would argue with, but, but that was his focus. And so he tried to change it at the level of culture uh, from the top down, obviously, because that's... <laughs> well, <laughs> there was... Mao's revolution is interesting. The, the, the revolution there is as close to, I think, uh, a communist 
the original kind of Marxist view of it would be. But then he thought what you need to do is you need to make sure that the culture is right so that the culture creates the kind of people that can live in the kind of society that you're looking for, right? That this is a, you need to, uh, people are malleable and you need to shape them properly. And if you allow things to continue as they are, the problem you're going to get is it's just going to create more of the people who like the system as it is. It's going to create more of the, uh, more of the same thing. Um, this idea is, uh, and Mao didn't, may or may not have articulated it that way. That's more of a, a modern articulation, but that's kind of the mm-hmm. same idea. He created classes of people, and he would say, you know, if, you're, if you fit into these categories, you're bad. And they were, mar- they were colored, uh, they were, what's the, what's the right word? The, there was a color associated with different behaviors and different mm-hmm. uh, things. Like if you were a descendant of a capitalist, is, a, is an obvious example, you were bad. And, and uh, the color associated with that was black, and the good things were associated with the color red. And you wanted to do more red behaviors and fit more into the red categories and avoid the black ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, the details on it are interesting, but, but not relevant to understanding the modern day predicament. But you can see he's trying to shape the culture. Right? He's trying to say, these things are good, these things are evil. Let's build around those ideas. Yeah, and and it was successful. It worked. You know I mean? <laughs> it he, seemed to work really he, well. Yeah. He did he did reshape the culture of of China for a significant period of time, where he did you know was successful in having that uprising. You know what I mean? In having you know the working class turn against the other classes. You know what I mean? I mean uh-huh. more than probably anyone else, he was successful in in accomplishing. You know. A, a true Marxist revolution, you know, maybe not exactly, but close. Yeah, yeah, certainly as close as a, a as picturesque as a, as any of them have been. Um, so I'm going to drop two names here. They're not that important, but if you wanted to look into these things more, these would be good places because these are the names that kind of carry this into the modern era and into the critical theory as we know it now. Critical theory, I say that as we know it now. None of this before was critical theory, right? Critical theory is a, theory is a fairly recent invention. Um, yeah, critical theory it, is the final spinoff we're getting to here. <laughs> yeah, yes. So as it shifts into critical theory, or what is more recognizably critical theory, um, it follows this train that Mao had of shaping the culture. So you get a guy named Paulo Freire. He's this... Uh, I was going to say Brazilian. I think he's Brazilian. He spoke Portuguese, and I thought it was Brazilian. Um, yes, I'm going to. I'm 90% sure of that. Not that it particularly matters if you happen to be from <laughs> Portugal or some other some other Portuguese speaking group. But Paulo Freire is a. It was a thinker who applied these ideas, and he and he was in education, and he looked at the schools and he said, "If you're going to fix the problem of cultural reproduction." You have to fix it at the level of education. If you're going to change society in a way that the change sticks, it's got to be at education. Now, that seems in some ways intuitive, right? But if, you're gonna, if you change the way kids are educated, that that change would be lasting and you know, deeper maybe than if you change a business law or something like mm-hmm. that. It makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. And so he wrote a book... Uh, uh, he wrote a number of books. Uh, he, as an author, he is one of the most cited and perhaps the most cited educational theorist of all time. Um, and his stuff is 100% transferring these ideas 
solving the problem of cultural reproduction. He says, if you, as long as the education stays the same, we're going to end up with capitalist societies and saying we've got to transform education so we can get out of this and actually change things at, a, at the root level. Mm-hmm. Um, Herbert Marcuse is another one along these lines who carries it further. So, so basically, you know, to reconnect to what we talked about earlier, you know, Mark says you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a revolution because the oppressed will, will have no choice but to rise up against the oppressors. And then you've got, you know, you know, Lenin and Mao who, who have championed some versions of you have to do something to push these people to make the change. You know, Lenin through a straight, straightforward vanguard, Mao through, you know, a cultural shift. And then, and then you have, you know, Paulo, how do you pronounce his last name? Ferrari. Ferrari. Um, who's saying that what you have to do is shift the education of the people in order to shift that culture, in order, in shift order culture. to achieve, in order to achieve that change, in order to get the revolution. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, the product of these theories. Uh, so, so uh, you don't just change the education. To change the education, you have to. They use words like transform, um, catalyze. Uh, they use they use they often use alchemical terms, <laughs> which is interesting, and and there's a reason for that because the theory depends on uh, on what is essentially an alchemical process put in the Socratic form where you've got you've got two ideas in opposition to each other, and by uh, through the opposition you find a synthesis that is neither one or the other but that is transformative. Um, this is actually. Uh, uh, how the Hegelian process works. The reason history goes somewhere is because there are two things that are opposed to each other, sometimes referred to as contradictions, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that creates this tension that, that must resolve itself. And through that resolution, you get the next stage of progress. This is how Marx thought of uh, the capitalist stage of society. The, uh, the contradiction was that capital accumulates and exploits the people under them and eventually that will lead to the poor having nothing, right? In this kind of automatic fashion. Two, two things that exist in contradiction to each other that eventually are going to cause some kind of change. Um, and you'll, you'll still see that language all over this kind of thinking. Um, so in order to really change capitalism, you have to not just slightly change education, not just adjust it, but really significantly change it. And, uh, and critical theory is in some ways the art of looking at the world so that you change things significantly. Now that sounds, that sounds like a fairly harmless description. <laughs> but and a very vague one at that. A very vague description, right? This is, this is how they write. You should go read Paulo Ferrari sometime if you're listening to this. Um, you will wonder, at times he will be saying nothing until you realize what he's implying with his words. I mean, it's very cryptic, and the way they use words is cryptic. Um, so what we want to do is walk you through how critical theory views something. And key to this is, uh, is the idea of cultural reproduction, right? They're trying to change the culture. And consciousness. The idea is that 
Their goal is to make people conscious of the fact that their society is so messed up that it needs to be significantly changed. They want people to be critical, right? Critical theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not critical thinking, though it was the terms were deliberately designed to be confusing. And you'll often see this. They'll take a term that has two meanings or that has a positive meaning and they'll give it a different meaning. So critical theory is meant to critique society. And to do that, you have to have, you have to be conscious of the problems in society. And so all of the education is about making people conscious so that they can see, again, to draw on Hegel, this, uh, this movement of history, right? Where is history going? Uh, what, where is progress? The term progress is related to this idea. You want to progress towards history. And as we talk about critical theory, it's really important to remember that <laughs> we're not saying that the people who talk like this or think like this know any of the things that we just said. Uh-huh. They don't have to. The education system doesn't have to teach them about Marx and, and how it went through the um, these ideas really come through the, the German historical school in Germany that then comes through the, uh, into the Frankfurt school. And anyway, you know, you can, you can trace those things and how they came to the U.S. And uh, you don't need to know any of that to see critical theory, see how it works and, and how it ties back here. But having those ideas in the background will make them make a little more sense. So, so Dan... I guess my question would be, you know, as as a listener, you know, okay, so so critical critical theory is based off of, you know, Marxism originally, but that was 200 years ago. There's been many many variations. So, believing in critical theory doesn't mean you believe in, you know, the genocide of Mao, you know, and and I don't think we want to <laughs> argue that that's the case. No, no. But taking it as it stands, What's the problem with teaching people to be conscious of and critical of the fundamental issues within their own community or society or system or whatever? Because that's a good question. So what I would argue is... Doesn't that sound relatively good to have people be aware and fighting for things that matter? uh, Yeah, and of course. And of course, being critical of of the systems around you is helpful. That's in, in a sense what we do in these all podcasts. the time <laughs> right we're trying we're criticizing we're we're trying to see the flaws in the systems to help them um the short answer to that is that uh this is that the goal hasn't changed the means has mm-hmm. the, and the tools the tools of critical theory were designed explicitly the uh, the way of thinking uh and and when you objectives. and when you when you say the goal, you mean the toppling of the current system, right? The toppling of the current system to bring in a kind of utopia. And maybe it's not Marx, right? It, it, certainly, it's not for uh, for some people it is, but for a lot of the people who go to college and they learn critical theory, they're not looking at Marx. Mm-hmm. What they're looking at is something inclusive and sustainable. Mm-hmm. And those are those are the buzzwords of the day: inclusive, mm-hmm. sustainable, uh, you know, equal will be thrown in there. Equity will be thrown in there. Um, but it's but the idea is you have to you have to see the system for what it is. Um, 
so that you can then bring about this kind of, uh, in utopia may be too strong a word, right? I don't know if they think that it'll be perfect. Mm-hmm. It'll be significantly better. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer that question? No. Okay, ask the question again. <laughs> well, it, it, it answers the question, but not, but not in a convincing way. Yes, you know, yes, cause, yes. Because the ask question them. is, what's wrong with this? And, and your answer is, well, they want to make things better. <laughs> so, so you need you need to explain why they're better isn't better or they're better isn't better enough fair enough i could because, I gotta, you because, uh because sustainable sounds good inclusive around. yeah inclusive yes. sounds good and sustainable sounds good uh-huh uh-huh they do sound good uh, and the words are chosen to sound good they mean different things than what people think those words mean when they use them um so the the short, an- the short answer, I already said that and then gave yeah, an answer. Try, you said it was the, an answer. Let's, let's try the try medium, the medium answer. There we or go. Or maybe the shorter one, at least a different one. <laughs> um, it, it, the problem is there's so many ways that could go. Okay, so let me try I, this. Let me try this and you, you can tell me no again later. I, I, I'm enjoying it. I'll be happy to. Um, they want to destroy capitalism. And that's a stupid idea. <laughs> There's the short, short answer. Yeah, that, <laughs> because that, it will that's, make everything worse. That's that's much, a much, much better worse. answer. They want to destroy capitalism because they think ultimately it's the problem. That goal has not changed. That's still the primary goal here. They think that there's something fundamentally wrong with private property, and you have to uh, you have to eliminate capitalism as it stands. And mm-hmm. here's another major problem with it. They believe that you can educate people into any society because people are extremely flexible and malleable. That's, a, that's something that has not changed. Marx thought it. And Have they never every, met people? And everybody after that thought it. And they believe that if you can just get to them early enough. Oh, okay. So when they're kids, they're flexible. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. If you can get to them early enough and culture them properly you can make them into you can make any kind of society work it's it's all about uh how you were shaped so in other words what you're saying is that the stated official goal of these groups is to teach children to be aware of the current system in order to find ways to improve it to make it more sustainable more equal and more uh inclusive when in reality, what they're doing is they're brainwashing kids to hate capitalism. Is that, is that a good sum up? <laughs> that actually is a very good sum up. <laughs> it's a great sum up. And, and when I say what they actually mean, they're not shy about it in academic papers. They're not shy about it. They're explicit. Paulo Freire is explicit. Herbert Marcuse is explicit. Um, you look at, you read papers today on things like queerness. And they're explicit. Racism, they're explicit. They believe that the problem is not racism or... It's, it's not that people are mean. It's that the system, from the ground up, through capitalism, through these Western ideas, causes people to be this way. And so the whole thing must be changed. And, you know credit to them it's it's worked you know i i would say that that right now 
in the United States, capitalism is looking very unfavorable, especially among the younger generations. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hop, yeah. hop on, hop on TikTok where all the twenty-year-olds, you know, are are posting about about anything, and capitalism is done. You know what I mean? From the twenty to you know, from the yeah. the mm-hmm. fifteen to thirty-year-old age group, which is an arbitrary group I just made up. It's there is no capitalism in that age group. Which is fun to say because I am in that age group. But I mean, it's just, it's there. It's achieved its goal where capitalism is out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people will point to, you know, democratic socialism as the, as the future often. And they, uh, they don't realize they're pointing at very capitalist societies, often more capitalist than the U.S. But anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> neither here nor there, right? They, the, the propaganda has worked. The, the ideas that they're trying to spread are working. Um, and I mentioned that that, uh, that uh, Paulo Freire is the most cited. Or I believe he is the most cited. He's at least one of the most cited educational theorists ever. His ideas have largely been adopted into schools. So the method is pretty simple. If you, if you were going to teach someone uh, to be a critical theorist, and we've looked at things like uh, critical theory and racism, and uh, before, and that's still extremely relevant. Uh, in fact, we go into that in much more detail than we'll go into here. Uh, if you wanted to look back at that episode in light of this one and see if you can track these ideas, I didn't understand these ideas as well then, um, but I think you'll find everything still there. So I want to talk now about the process of what, what it looks like to use critical theory to criticize something. Um, and it's actually really formulaic. Um, once I heard it described this way, um, I could see it everywhere. <laughs> I didn't realize how unvarying the pattern actually is. Um, this provides a third answer to your question earlier, Brad, that I didn't want to get into then until I talked about this process. Um, but the third answer is that the methodology is actually pure sophistry. And mm-hmm. I hope to prove that after we describe, you know, to go through why I think that's the case after we describe how it works and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So um, the racism one is not is a really easy one. Um, what you do That's is... That's the one most people are familiar with, you know. CRT is what people talk about, not yes. critical theory generally. Yeah, yeah. And there's critical gender theory and there's, criti- there's critical every theory because these ideas are extremely easy to apply to anything. Um, in part because it's... You could, either that's because it's a solid methodology that's useful in a variety of spheres or it's because it's sophistry. In this case, it's because it's sophistry. Uh, sophistry, by the way, if you don't know that term, the sophists, the Greeks, it's, it's a, it seems logical and to make sense, and it doesn't, is the very short description of that term. <laughs> sophistry is uh, when a salesman cheats you out of money by, you know, by, by convincing you of something by, through lies and deceit. And anyway, yeah. it's, it's logical. It appears logical. It isn't. Um, so with critical racism, and Kendi is case in point of critical theory applied to racism, uh, what you do is you say um, society is, ex, uh, is racist. Now, to do that, you've got to bend the word racism a little bit, right? Actually, a lot of it. <laughs> because societies don't have intentions and they don't believe things like one race is superior or inferior to another. Um, and the definition of racism changed significantly when Ke- the way Kendi uses it. But he says society is racist, and we know that because black people, there are disparities between black people 
and other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that disparity proves the racism. It proves mm-hmm. that there's a, in, in other areas, you wouldn't say racism, you'd say is problematic. There's a problem, and we know there's a problem because people are being excluded. And so the reason they're excluded is the logic continues, right? We've got our piece of evidence, the numbers. We've got the excluded group. These are the oppressed. The reason they're excluded is because people seek for power. And the people that are at the top, the people that have power, say the legislature in this case, the legislature Mm -hmm. are not merely legislators acting in the goodwill of everyone else with the best of intentions. They're people who exercise power for their own benefit. Mm -hmm. And because they're mostly white, that means they're favoring white people over black people. Therefore, the legislature is racist or therefore this institution is racist. Yeah, and I would add that often it's when people talk about it, they talk about the wealthy and the business owners mm-hmm. as as those who are at the top and that really the legislatures serve them. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the lobbyists, all the rich b- businessmen, all the people with billions of dollars, they really control the legislature is usually how this is framed. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so they're the ones who are excluding everybody else, right? This is the language of exclusion here versus inclusion. Um, this is how they, how they frame things. They usually just and say it racist, need, and it needs to be, and it needs to be framed that way, because the instrument of change is often the legislature. You know what I mean? You can't have the bad guy also be your your knight in shining armor. That, that's you know right. what I mean. That's right. It, it it becomes very problematic very quickly, and so having it be a different bad guy is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So you can do this with gender as well, right? Women. There are less women at the. Uh, running the very highest levels of business, the the you know at the CEO, executive level of Fortune 500 companies than men. Therefore, women are being excluded. We've got our oppressed group, women. Mm-hmm. We've got our evidence, the numbers, in in relation to the proportion of the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, this is problematic, and the solution is to be more inclusive. We need to include more women in this process. Um, the problem is that these businesses are run by a bunch of men. And men want to keep running these businesses, so they exclude mm-hmm. women, right? This is a, they, they keep out women, and, uh, and they do it. They claim expertise. This is the big defensive claim. They claim that they're just hiring the best person for the job. The legislature claims they are just you know, making or the, the lobbyists, the businessmen, you know, they're just trying to make the best business decisions. But the truth is that they are actually just gatekeepers, keeping other people out because they want it all for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's the motivation that critical theory assigns to every institution it looks at. They want to keep and hold power. Get yeah, and hold power, I mean. Yes. And in... And to be generous to them, to some degree, that's correct. People, when they're making rules, generally don't make rules that hurt them. (laughs) If you're at the top and you're setting the rules, those rules usually include you. (laughs) They're Uh usually favorable to you, right? There's that partial truth there. And you get a lot of this in, uh, what's her name too? Uh, 
the uh, D'Angelo, D'Angelo, where she's like white people in power, thus racism. Um, well, it's because she wrote she wrote the child's version of you know that's Kennedy's right. work. That's right, she did. She wrote the how to monetize this in by teaching training on mm-hmm. helping white people get over their fragility. Um. So now, now think about this because you can apply this to literally anything. You could look at a basketball game, right? And you could say, let's look at the numbers. What's wrong here? Maybe there's not enough Latino kids. You could do it by race, right? Maybe there's not enough girls playing basketball. Maybe there's not enough poor people playing basketball. Maybe there's Mm -hmm. not enough gay people playing basketball. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's not enough. You could literally take any category. And what are the odds the numbers line up? I'll tell you what the odds are. It's virtually zero. Crap. Virtually zero. There's no reason. We'll get into that. Sorry, I'll try and focus on one thing at a time. We'll get into the numbers part. And then, and that's your hook, right? You say, you say, look at this. And then if you, if you want to, you can find a sad story about somebody with that description. Some, uh, some, uh, gay player who wanted to play on basketball and, and, uh, couldn't and they're excluding him because, believes he's excluding him because he's gay. And then you've got your hook, right? You've got your news story into mm-hmm. the critical theory that then says there's something problematic about basketball. Now, that may seem like, like we're being unfair to them, but we literally have articles up right now where they're doing things like talking about how tomboy as a term is problematic because it suggests all kinds of things about gender, right? It excludes people of certain genders with this term and therefore it's problematic we've got our oppressed class we've got our uh, the question is who are the people in power well in this case it's just language language is the system of power that needs to be changed mm-hmm. and uh and you change that to be more inclusive and uh in favor of whatever the excluded group is um yeah and 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 to be fair dan you've got one article up talking about how calling someone a tomboy is problematic but you've got another article up i say you like i don't have it up either you know i just happen to know you very well we've got up another article about tomboys as well that's a that's a little bit a little bit harsher the racist history of celebrating the american tomboy lisa selen davis on the endless privileges accorded to white girls and so this one is is saying tomboy is is this is is one thing that's opening up this whole floodgate of of racism. You know what I mean? It's it's much more than just problematic. It's just one more way in which everything is racist. Yes, yes. So tomboy is racist. Tomboy is uh, sexist. You obviously you can you because mm-hmm. girls can perf- can do can perform as males as well, and there's no reason to call them a tomboy. You might as well call them. Right, it's it's anti-trans, right? It's problematic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another article we have here talking about gardening, and how gardening is racist, or at least problematic. At least problematic. Yes, <laughs> problematic is the more neutral term. When we say racist, we mean problematic in a specific way. Uh-huh. Problematic is the more neutral term. And how is gardening problematic? Well, not very many black people do it. And so it's excluding people. 
Well, why is it excluding mm-hmm. people? Because gardeners as a group, the people who run the magazines, right? Not the not gardeners as a group per se, but the people at the top. The the elite gardeners. The elite gardeners, the people who publish articles and, and have gardening magazines. Is Home and Garden actually about gardening? What are gardening I, magazines? I, do people yeah, still get so. magazines? Ho- home and is Garden it? is all about home. <laughs> Garden's an afterthought. <laughs> And it talks about, so this article talks about how maybe, you know, it it talks about why it's problematic based on the numbers. You've got this oppressed class, how actually gardeners don't allow different kinds of gardening, right? They're discriminating in some way. They're not allowing black ways of gardening. Um, In the same way that the problem with tomboys, it doesn't allow uh, female ways of being, of acting like a boy, or it doesn't allow uh, trans ways of behaving masculine in a masculine manner, right? And and so he proposes at the end that maybe the problem is with the term gardening itself, and or at least part of the problem. And you need to get rid of the word gardening and start calling it something else that's more inclusive. Now, I hope as you're listening to this, you're beginning to think of what things you could find that are problematic in the world. Because I'm pretty confident that you could give me anything and I could show you how it's problematic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One, it goes back to what you said before. There's no, there's no field, there's no industry, there's no sport, there's no activity, there's no hobby, there's no group that's perfectly diverse no matter which way you slice it. Because there'd be no way to do that based off of people's differing interests without mandating it. Yeah, yeah. There's no way to do that without mandating it. Um, and even mandated, what you would have is you'd have the invention of new categories that it would then yeah. be problematic along you'd those have lines. To be, it had to be invented, mandated, and constantly altered. And constantly altered, that's right. That's right. Based off of, based off of whatever's, whatever's popular at the time. So... The education system is creating people to see the world in this way. And if you want to get a PhD, you should find out how gardening is sexist. Or how going, I was going to say going to the grocery store is sexist. That that one's too easy. That one's probably been written about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? You, You have to, all you have to find, the only job you have really as a critical theorist is to find that hook. The you look at a few numbers, you get a little story about it, and you're golden. Mm-hmm. You've got your paper, you've got your PhD thesis, and you can do it to anything. So what? What on earth is the value of this? What actually is the problem here? Because the language makes it sound like it's not inclusive, and we want to be inclusive. It's problematic. We don't like problems. It's not, uh, you know, it can be racist. It can be all of these different things. But I'm telling you, they're essentially that they are playing very loose and very fast with these words. And when I say they're playing loose and fast with these words, that that sounds unkind, right? I want to give them the benefit (laughs) of a doubt. In in this episode, we try. Occasionally we say this is stupid, right? (laughs) We don't want to do that as much as we can. We want to give you the best version of the arguments we disagree with as well as we can. We're not going to be able to give you the Mm -hmm. best version. You're going to have to find people who believe it to give you the best version. But we can give you Mm -hmm. something, and then we can reply to it, right? Mm -hmm. Give you the counter-arguments, at least. 
So here's what I mean when I say they're playing loose and fast with those terms. Kendi will say, we need to deal with systemic racism. And you'll say, where is the systemic racism? And he'll say, look at the numbers. And you'll say, but, and you'll, you'll dig deeper, right? You'll get, you'll get in there further. Oh, let me pause for a second. Do we want to deal with the numbers first? What numbers do you have? Well, I mean, just numbers in generally, because they're looking at disparities in, I guess you basically did when you were saying free people choose different things. No, I think we need to talk about it a little bit more about why the numbers being off prove doesn't prove anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before, before I'll just, I'll just erase what I was going to say there and, and sort of later. Okay. Um, so let's start with the evidence. I'm going to go through these piece by piece. And then we're going to talk about the, the, their use of terms and how it's dishonest. They're, they're using a word in two different ways. And when you attack them on the way that is a little, on the way they really mean it, they fall back to the way that they don't actually mean it. And that's why they're using terms that have double meanings all the time. So the numbers are the first issue that I, because this is their, their only evidence that something is wrong is the numbers. Now, if you find that gardeners are where all the gardeners are wearing white sheets and putting crosses on people's lawn, then you don't, you know, you know, the numbers are an afterthought. There's clearly racism happening here. They're clearly excluding black people, right? That's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the thing is, the numbers are being yeah. used for all the evidence. Mm-hmm. That is their one piece of data is the numbers. Is the and by numbers we mean the ratio of blacks, usually blacks when it's regarding racism, to the other races that are participating. And it's almost always just white because Asians throw it off. And, but the problem is these numbers don't actually mean anything. Well, they mean something. They mean lots of things. <laughs> it's not the thing they think it means. <laughs> and, and more importantly, they could mean lots of things, but they don't def- by definition mean something. You have one piece of data and you're drawing all these conclusions off of it. And that's... I mean, it's it's scientifically unsound. You know what I mean? Yeah. You 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 look at this this group of gardeners and see this specific makeup of 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 gender, of race, of sexual orientation, of all sorts of things. You know, it could be socioeconomic status. It could be the countries that it's taking place in. So by nationality, you know, it could be by age. I mean, there's lots of different ways you can break it down. And there are real world reasons for all of those, for all of those breakdowns. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. and some of them are going to be easier. You know what I mean? Age, you have older people gardening because they have more time. You know what I mean? Because they're more patient. You know, there is one possible answer. I don't actually have the data to back that up, but you know, it sounds like it could make sense, right? Yeah. You know, you could have, you know, you could have by nationality. It may be more common in some countries where where gardening, where providing for your family with your own land is just a part of life. You know what I mean? You need it to survive. Yeah, it's 100% so have, geographical. Geographical is a yeah, big, is a big okay. is a huge is a where huge are factor. You? What can you grow? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
No, and then all these factors come into play, and then there's all sorts of other ones, you know what I mean? Typically, people who garden know someone who gardens, you know what I mean? And they get exposed to it, and that's why they would even consider it. And that becomes a cultural thing, which is a, a serious buzzword with with critical theories, but it's it's real, you know what I mean? <laughs> if your parents garden, you might be more interested in gardening, and also you might be more likely to uh, be the same race as your parents, you know what I mean? And so so these things can correlate without being direct causes. That's right, that's right, and that's a good explanation. Um, with critical race theory, we would always point to, uh, I always point to the idea that uh, the disparities are caused by racism. Um, you, get, you get the highest, if you break it down by race, the highest earning are Asians, uh, particularly the Japanese. Um, and then mm-hmm. whites, and then uh, Latinos, and blacks. in the U.S., right? In the U.S. or just generally? In the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and one of the biggest factors on income is age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have money. It's it's by some measurements, it's the most important factor for predicting. That's wealth. why I'm waiting till I get older before I try and make money. <laughs> but this makes sense because you're going to have not not what you're doing. The fact that yeah, age well, that doesn't is make any sense. <laughs> it makes sense because <laughs> as you as you age, you get more skills. You have more work experience. You have more time to to invest in house, you know, and build up your equity and different, you know. And you just literally have more time to accumulate the wealth. You more know, time to time. make money, right? Mm-hmm. For all of these reasons, of course, age is a big factor. Which is the youngest demographic? Which is the youngest race? Well, blacks and Latinos are the youngest. Uh, they vary a little bit. I can't remember which one is older. Who's the oldest population? Well, it's the Japanese, <laughs> right? Like this actually aligns exactly how you would expect. And it explains a portion of the disparity. If you assume the disparity is racism, all of the disparity is racism, and you don't account for any other factor that's playing a role. Gardening, you'd count for their geography. Where on earth are they? Are they living somewhere in a city where you have no space to garden or very little? Maybe that's part mm-hmm. of it, right? Are you living in the mountains? Like, you know, what? all of these things matter. All of the factors you, you pointed to would play some role in whether or not a group get garden, gardens. So if you look at the disparity and you say racism, you're making an assumption. You don't mm-hmm. have the evidence to make that claim until you've done a multi-factor analysis and you can actually show racism. This is why the word racism has been redefined to systemic racism, and systemic racism literally means a disparity in, in the ratio of the general population. Mm-hmm. That, that's all it is, and that doesn't actually show a problem, because disparities are the norm. No, and, and when you talk about sophistry, that's one of the greatest examples of it. It is. Is that that one change is so intellectually dishonest to say that any... Because you say disparity, and disparity sounds bad. But what we're saying is any deviation in numbers is racism and therefore a problem. Yeah, you can take any two white cities and, you know, white population groups, white cities. Are there exclusively white cities? There probably are. You'd have to look. But (laughs) any two uh, groups of white populations, right, and compare them and you will find differences. Mm -hmm. You'll find differences. There's a there's a. There's a law in probability called the law of large numbers. And the idea is that if you flip a quarter, you've got a 50% chance of being heads or tails. If you flip it 100 times, 
you're probably going to be close to 50%. If you flip it a million times, you're going to be really close to 50%. The idea mm-hmm. being that the larger the, uh, though you have variation and, you know, probability of, of outcomes, the larger the group, the more, uh, or what's the word, the, the more iterations, the larger the number, the less variation you have from the average. And -hmm. people took that and they thought that that would apply really well to racial groups. And they are really wrong. (laughs) They're really wrong because there's not an even probability of outcomes based on your circumstances. And and they took that without understanding how it works. That let's say that we're flipping a coin for every person on earth. You know what I mean? Uh You know, so you're flipping a coin six, what is it? Seven, eight billion times. A lot of times you think, okay, well, then every other coin flip should be heads and then tails and then heads and then tails, not realizing that if you flip a quarter seven billion times, you'll have chains potentially even thousands long of heads or tails. Right. And is that because of systemic, um, you know, I don't even know, it's not racism, but quarter bigotry, (laughs) you know what I mean, between heads and tails, like all these heads banded together and flipped a thousand times in a row so they could all be together because they hate tails. No, it's just because that's that's how probabilities work. You get over the long run, you know what I mean, it Mm -hmm. might balance out, but even when it's perfectly even, you know, over those seven billion, you're going to have crazy disparities in the minutia, you know what I mean? Yeah. So... And that could be applied to racism where it's like, okay, well, you're going to have some businesses that might only hire white people and some businesses that hire, you know, a mix and some businesses that hire only of one race. And it could just be that that fluctuation in, in probability, you know, where what area are they in? Who's actually applying to those jobs? All of these things are real factors. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We it, People think that if we compare all blacks and all whites, that it will just average out all of those differences in a way, in the same way that if you, if you flipped a coin enough times, it would average out the probability differences, right? As if every person has a 5% chance to become an accountant, a 1% chance to become, mm-hmm. a, you know, and that's just not the way people Which work. Which we do. <laughs> Everyone has a 5% chance to become an accountant. <laughs> that one, yeah. that one we're firm on the other probabilities. I'm not sure. It's not so clear. <laughs> Because only the accountants did the math. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so there, there, there are so many flaws with this assumption about the numbers that we start entirely wrong with the only bit of concrete evidence. It's just wrong. It's sophistry. It's, a, it's got a sheen of logic over the top, but if you look close at it, you find that there is actually no basis on which to assume that all the people of one group and all the people of a different group should have the same outcome. They're depending on where they are, depending on how old the group is on average, how, you know, these things actually matter. They do not average out. They don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not interchangeable with a coin that has a, the same probability, you know, a perfect coin that's flipped a certain amount of times that averages out. It's just not the case. And it's, it's the, the heart of Kendi's logic and it is absolutely false. No, and, and it's one of those things where you go big to get these broad generalizations, but the more you go big, the more it breaks down because 
Because as you said, you know, white people in one city are different than white people in, in another city in many different areas. Same goes for black people. Black people in one city are going to be different than black people in another city. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to group all the people in the world into white people and black people, you know, and Hispanic people and Asian and, you know, and, and, and go even deeper and go as, as, as you know, in, in all these different areas is is nonsense. You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to say all of these people, all these white people are the same. You know what I mean? A white a white man living in France, you know, a white cis cisgender man living in France is the same as a white cisgender man living in, you know, San Diego. <laughs> and and they're the same as far as we're concerned about, you know, geopolitical status, their power, their wealth, they're really just the same person is nonsense Uh uh-huh they're interchangeable yeah exactly doesn't make any sense yeah it's it's to start completely wrong so then you start with that and you go (laughs) the reason the reason you can start with that and then jump to literally anything you can find numbers that show any kind of discrimination if you're going to look at systemic discrimination to say any kind of uh exclusion is because you've started wrong You've started wrong. You've started on the assumption that they should be the same. And they're not going to be the same, even if there is no racism, even if there is no bigotry. They're not going to be the same. They're going to be different. Black people tend to choose different careers because of, in some cities, it's going to vary, right? It's going to be like, and people, uh, white people in, white people where I'm from, in the middle of a tiny town in Idaho, <laughs> tend to choose certain things. And it's different from mm-hmm. the neighboring tiny town in Idaho, right? That's, it's just, it's so different. Different, uh, it, what's interesting is to look at a breakdown of races by, by a profession, because you'll find, you find all kinds of variations. And when you realize that variation is actually the norm, disparity is actually the norm, then you stop pushing for, to eliminate those disparities and you get to a much better place. But if you assume that those disparities are the problem, what you're going to find is that you can then put any kind of, of uh, bigotry, you can attach any kind of bigotry to that because there's always going to be the disparity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the disparities are always going to be there, but they're not indicative of an actual problem. Um, no one is being and- unjustly treated just because there's a disparity. And and so of course people listening, you know, probably have have one final concern which is okay, but I've seen actual racism. You know what I mean? <laughs> or I've seen evidence of actual racism or actual gender discrimination yes. or sexual orientation discrimination or or any of the above, above ageism whatever. Which, which is true. People have because there is yeah. bigotry. Yeah. There is discrimination. There is racism in the United States. And sometimes that racism is even systematic, not in the way that Kendi means it, but in the way where a system is designed to exclude people from something. That happens. There are businesses that function and hire people in a racist way. You know what yep. I mean? Like they're yep. actually, they're like, I will, I will hire a white person over a black person with the same qualifications, or even if the white person has worse qualifications, there are businesses out there that do that. You know what I mean? There are, there are laws on the books that shouldn't be there. You know what I mean? There are actual problems that are taking place that are not just problematic, but that are serious problems. Yeah. And you can point to them and it's not just the disparity numbers that give you some kind of that's based on assumption but actual like 
you can, like you said, you can point to the person who's being mistreated because of their race. Yeah, exactly. You can point to evidence that's beyond generalities and is actual evidence like we're familiar with. You know what I mean? Hey, there's evidence of discrimination because there's evidence that this person discriminated against this person. So this is big sophistry number two. Um, Number one is that the the evidence actually isn't there. It's it's an assumption that they're going into and they just look at the numbers and then attach something to it. Um, Sophistry number two is the way they use the terms. So there's there's a logical fallacy called the Mott and Bailey, and uh, a Mott and Bailey. <laughs> this is the least helpful term because who on earth knows off the top of their head what a Mott and Bailey are? <laughs> yeah, at least some people know a Bailey because they might have like a you know a cousin or a niece who's named <laughs> Bailey, but no one knows. A I Mott. thought you were gonna say they know they have a Bailey, and I was like, really? I was I was really excited, no. but it was just a pun. It was just a pun. <laughs> It was just a, it was just a joke. I think I know at least one or two Baileys. I know a Bailey. You know, at least known someone named a Bailey, but I've never known I did, anyone I named did a know So, anyways, okay. What did Bailey do that got so this these terminology are not names. created? These are descriptions of defensive fortifications from the medieval period because that helps us remember logic? Question mark. So the idea is this: You're appealing to the nerd in me, you know, as someone who's familiar with the Mott and Bailey yeah, 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 fallacy. Yeah. I love it I because too. I'm like, yeah, moats. Castle walls. This is awesome. Yes. Anyways, continue. I I was pretending to be one of the normal people, Brad, but I'm also that nerd. Um, So the Mott and Bailey refer to two different fortifications. So basically these defensive fortifications, uh, one of them is a light defense, a light, (laughs) a lightly defended area. It usually has a, like a palisade wall and a ditch around it or something like that. Right. And then you can fall back to the, the mot, which is actually like the keep. Mm-hmm. One of these is much easier to defend, right? The, the castle is going to be easier to defend, which in this case is the mot, essentially. And the, the bailey, the area, the larger area, is harder to defend. So the idea is that with a mot and bailey fallacy, what appears to be one argument is actually two arguments. One argument is that because of the disparities, you need to change the system through this critical theory where we, may, where we see problems in everything and we need to be more inclusive and we need to systematically change everything. That's the Bailey. That, I think, is an actually indefensible argument. It's because of the, what we were talking about with the evidence just isn't there. They're seeing things that, that, that actually aren't there. Then there's the second argument, which is actually entirely distinct. This is the Mott. This is the castle. This is the argument that, hey, wait, there actually is real racism out there. There actually is real sexism Mm -hmm. out there. There actually are people who are mistreating trans people. That's true. And and what's what's so clever about this, Dan, is that in order to prove the systemic racism argument wrong, they argue you have to defeat both arguments, the (laughs) Mott and the Bailey. And that's how the fallacy works, is you say, okay, well... Well, in order to prove me wrong, you have to prove there's no racism. You know what I mean? Either Kendi's right and systemic racism is is there because of disparity and we need to really change the whole system in order to fix it. Or you're arguing there is no racism yes. and everything yep. is fine. And those are your only two options. And that's the fallacy. They're saying, no, you. I've got a weak argument right here. 
and I've got a strong argument, but the only way to defeat my weak argument is to defeat my strong yep. argument. Yep. Yeah, so there's a bait and switch there. And the bait and switch is made possible by the words they use. If, if Kenny weren't mm-hmm. calling it systemic racism, if what he was saying is, you know, something else entirely, we wouldn't connect it to the idea of racism. But Kendi's actually not talking about racism. He's talking about something entirely different. Not racism in the classic sense where people feel like one race is superior to another. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something entirely different. But he's connected the words so that he can play this Mott and Bailey game. He can say, there's systemic racism. And as you said, when you confront him on it or confront him on the details, he says, so you don't believe there's racism happening? Mm -hmm. And we've switched arguments, right? These are two different discussions. This happens with the, this is the new thing with going with the, the green movement, the, the climate movement. So sustainability has become one of those words. What is sustainable? Well, something sustainable is something you can repeat across time. Everybody wants our energy systems to be sustainable. Everybody wants everything to be sustainable, usually. <laughs> Anything good, you also want it to be sustainable. The, the problem <laughs> yeah. is the word has a second meaning now. And sustainable is all over these policies that have nothing to do with sustainable in that sense. It's attached to a political agenda that is doing something else. Um, Inclusion, right? We want to include people. We don't want to exclude people for arbitrary reasons. But inclusion, if inclusion means actually everybody must fit perfectly with their general population in a ratio where there's 13% black people, there must be 13 black people out of 100 doing everything. Yes, whatever it is. Inclusion actually isn't about including the excluded. It's about mandating that people make certain choices whether they want to or not. And that includes the Mm -hmm. black people who may or may not want to make up 13% of the people in any given category. And through this method of, of playing with words, this sophistry here, they they seem to be making arguments that everyone agrees with. Let's get rid of racism. Let's have a sustainable future. Let's, you know, these things mm-hmm, are not mm-hmm. always great sounding ideas, right, but they mean something entirely different. And ironically enough, we need to become woke enough to see it. <laughs> Wake up to the game. That's... We're trying to, we're trying to make you conscious of the fact that their consciousness is really just a lie. Yes. They, uh, it's funny, their idea is that you, that you and I, Brad, are under a false consciousness. We believe we're conscious, but we're not. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we clearly believe the same to them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fun little world. No, and, 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 that, and that, Dan, is the best answer to my question earlier about why wouldn't you want sustainable, inclusive consciousness? And the answer is because that's not really what they're after, that they're using the Martin and Bailey fallacy to trick you into accepting something far more extreme than what you actually want, which is an end to these serious problems, to these serious issues that we're having without forcing people into all sorts of things they don't want, which is, you know, what many of these radical thinkers do want, even though they won't admit it in those words. Yes, and they they will in the white papers. You read the academic papers, they're pretty clear about like, well, we need to we need to use this term, and by this term we mean this. And yes, we get mm-hmm. that it looks like we mean this other thing, and that's fine because that's good for advertising, essentially. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's a 
It's deception, and it's it's a high level of deception, and most of the people participating in it don't realize they've been deceived, right? They went to college, they're taught critical theory, and they come out of it thinking they're applying something that's actually real and substantial and going to lead to positive changes. They don't know that they're actually, that the logic they, they're using, the method they're using, is actually intellectually bankrupt, and that they're tearing down things that they don't understand. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.